Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Birgit Smith-Burton, who is the founder and executive director of the African American Development Officers Network. Welcome, Birgit. Thank you. I'm great. so happy to be here. Um, and gratitude that's coming um, from me when I get invited to share um, is overwhelming. I love to talk about this work and I love to, um, to talk to people who are interested in hearing. So thank you for the invitation. Well, as I told you uh, before we started recording, I have been so inspired by your work from afar. And for many of our, our listeners, you know, you know that oftentimes <clears throat> our guests are folks that I've had the opportunity to connect with or collaborate with informally or formally via the case community, via, you know, our customer community. Uh, but that is not the case today. Uh, Birgit and I are actually meeting each other for the first time. Um, but I have been admiring her work from afar for um, over a year now and have been, um, you know, so pleased with, with the opportunity to, to get to know more about her uh, personal and professional journey. And uh, as I uh, have been doing with recent guests, I want to start uh, by asking you the same question, Birgit, which is for many of us, um, you know, nobody is in middle school or high school talking about wanting to be a, uh, an advancement professional or working in the philanthropy world uh, long-term for the most part. Um, but we all somewhere along our journey stumbled across the space and then, uh, you know, connected with it. And, and oftentimes that can be somewhat connected to our own uh, collegiate experiences. And so I really wanted to ask you if you'd go back in time to let's call it, you know, junior, senior year of high school. Uh, who was that beer get? Where was she? Uh, and what led her to Madai University in Buffalo, New York? <laughs> um, that that really is, is kind of funny when you put it that way. Um, thinking back to who that beer get was. So um, I was beer get Smith at the time. I hadn't gotten married yet. And I was 100% focused on a theatrical career. Uh, I studied voice um, for eight years, classical voice for eight years. I um, was doing dinner theater. I was in the high school musicals, um, you know, studied piano. So I was actually on my way to the State University of New York at Fredonia um, and the university had a musical theater program and it was a combined music and theater program. And um, Brent, they only took uh, 15 freshmen a year and you know, over 800 applied for those 15 slots. So I was you know, focused, got in and was on my way. And believe it or not, I'm, I'm so, you know, I'm sad to say, but maybe, you know, because of how my career turned out, it was a good thing in a way, but I had an advisor who sat me down and said, I think you should choose another career. And I was mortified because I had gotten into the program and he said, oh, it's not because you lack talent at all, um, but because I just think as a black woman, your journey is going to be harder. Um, and so, you know, you really should think about going in another direction. And what was interesting about that Very good. is, yes. Who was that advisor? Because that's, uh, that's a pretty <laughs> bold uh, recommendation. Uh, you know what? I don't remember his name. I think it was Ron something. Um, and, you know, I can see him 
you know, sitting there um, telling me that he, I'm going to say he might've only been like 10 years older than me. Um, but yeah. And so both my parents are deceased now, but they both had, you know, lived through the civil rights movement. Um, if And my dad, you know, joined the, the Air Force the year that the Air Force became the Air Force, you know, from the Army Air Corps as a black man. They never knew why I left. If they had known, they would have marched my butt right back to Fredonia to finish the program. But I left. Long story short, I changed my major, went to Madai University, uh, which was Madai College at the time, and I majored in uh, media communications. Um, focusing on a career in broadcast journalism. And the end of that story is while I was doing an internship, I tripped into um, a nonprofit organization and was bitten by the fundraising bug and the rest is history. Well, I would say that, uh, you know, broadcast journalism being a, uh, a cousin uh, of the performing arts and yes. uh and I imagine you had an opportunity to use those skills. I'm I'm very tempted to ask you to sing us a, a, a song, given the uh, eight years of history. I mean, have you been able to maintain um, music as a part of your life, or no? Or not I'm, so much? I'm the, the typical uh, belt out the songs in the shower, and I hold full concerts in my car. <laughs> you know, I I'm one of those people you pull up next to at the uh, stoplight. You know, and I'm you know, fully into to something. <laughs> Very good. I, I got to admit, you and me both. And so someday maybe we'll have to go for a ride together and see what happens. Absolutely. But uh, we do have a strong track record of uh, late night karaoke after Evertrue conferences. <laughs> so maybe we track you down for a speaking gig that, someday. And uh, I can you do know, that. I can do that. Love it. And and so um, really going down this, this path, uh, music, theater, broadcast journalism, mm -hmm. and you had the opportunity to join uh, the United Negro College Fund right. uh, at the beginning of your career. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would just love your perspective on the early days, weeks, months, you know, going mm -hmm. from such a focus in other professional aspirations to, mm -hmm. as you said, sort of stumbling in. Um, it's one thing to stumble in. It's another thing to commit to almost a 10-year run. Uh, at your first basically job out of college. And so yeah. uh, that's pretty rare. And I'd love to just know, you know, did you know right away that this might be it for you? Or was it, um, you know, a, a rough start? I mean, how would you describe the the early um, stages of your career in the philanthropic world? So the United Negro College Fund um, in the late 80s, uh, and, and probably before that, but that's when I um, was hired, uh, was an organization that was hiring, um, you know, young uh, black um, aspiring, you know, fundraising professionals who we didn't know much about the profession at all. We didn't have the skills, but UNCF was willing to uh, train us. So there are a whole slew of professionals out there um, you know, in my age category and some older who have had careers in fundraising because of um, UNCF. And so, um, and I could call out, you know, some of the names and, you know, you'd say, oh, wow. Actually, okay. please, please do, because I think sometimes we forget where, you know, there could be these 
these launch pads for the, the philanthropic career, given that there is not a college major at most institutions that would be mm-hmm. fundraising, right? Mm-hmm. And so we've seen, for example, you know, countless uh, guests on the podcast and leaders around the sector who you know, happen to work as a student caller. One thing leads to another, and now they're a senior vice president for advancement. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, mm-hmm. somebody else uh, was was the recipient of a certain scholarship, which then exposed them to the world of philanthropy and so on and so forth. I'd love to know, you know, when you look at um, peers and leaders in the space mm-hmm. today, who are mm-hmm. some of the people that mm-hmm. maybe you crossed paths with early in your career? Um, one that I'm I'm pleased to actually call out, Dwayne Ashley who is the, uh, the founder and principal of Bridge Philanthropic Consulting in DC. Um, Duane uh, at one point was the, uh, the president, the head of the Thurgood Marshall Fund. And um, he's actually uh, one of the African-American Development Officers Network, which we'll talk about you know, eventually, AADO. Um, he's one of our founding uh, or inaugural, excuse me, board members. Um, and he and I recall, you know, back in the day being very, very young and novice fundraisers, um, having no idea that we were going to have, you know, the, this incredible career in fundraising uh, as a result of, you know, our work with the United Negro College Fund. Um, and, you know, there, there are many others. <laughs> And if I start calling them out, I'm going to forget some key, some key people. Um, but uh, there are many, many of us who have had careers in fundraising as a result. So what I was just going to ask is, um, as you reflect on your time at the United Negro College Fund, what are some of your favorite experiences, memories, events, people? I mean, just what stands out as being maybe some of the highlights that uh, help solidify your interest in the world of philanthropy? Um, I think that working with the alums of the uh, historically Black colleges and universities that were members of um, UNCF, um, you know, my parents were graduates of Tuskegee and Tuskegee University, uh, and they uh, had, um, well, actually they were the first in their families, both my mom and dad to go to college. And so to interact with the alumni, I, my territory was Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, and Albany. And so just the experience of hearing the stories and appreciating the opportunities they had by attending uh, historically black colleges and universities um, was very rewarding because it wasn't an experience I had or an experience I was having. And um, I really, I really appreciated that. Um, it was like having a big family just sort of embracing me. Um, and so, uh, you know, that made me appreciate raising money for, uh, you know, UNCF schools even more. And then people, you know, hearing this might not remember unless they're older, the Lou Lou Rawls Parade of Stars telethon. That was a big telethon back in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. And um, it was high energy, a lot of fun. We had our 
you know, uh, version in each city. And, you know, the people coming back back in the day when, you know, we, we were doing telethons, they would bring their checks and, you know, it would be a big opportunity on camera to present their check and people would make their donations and their names would go across the screen. It was just a lot of fun and a lot. And I'm not a special events person, Brent. You know, I mean, I, I run far from special events, but the telethon was always uh, a lot of fun and it was always great to see the money coming in and, you know, um, announcing the current total and heading towards that goal. So, um, I would say that that was one of the big things. Um, but then engaging with colleagues uh, across the country who worked for UNCF, we came to meetings uh, together. That was, um, you know, just being able to, to meet, share best practices, share experiences, uh, get to know each other. Like I said, we're, we're sort of this big family that's still connected. So. Um, yeah, my early days with UNCF. Now, let me just say, you know, it, some of the challenges because I was a generalist, so I did everything, special events, corporate and foundation relations, you know, um, work, uh, major gifts, um, you know, it, it was a lot. And so there was a point right at the beginning where I thought maybe this is not the profession for me. And that's when I was rescued by my, uh, my mentor, the first person who mentored me. His name was Charles Stevens. He worked for UNCF. Somebody said, reach out to Charles. This is back, you know, I'm dating myself now, right? This is back before uh, the internet and cell phones. Cell phones were, you know, new, uh, you know, on the scene. The big, you know, cell phone with the big leather case. And so, you know, a dollar a minute. So you didn't have very many conversations over a cell phone, but I reached out to him and he met me in a food court in Miami um, during one of the UNCF, uh, you know, retreats, staff retreats. And he spent nearly three hours with me and he actually talked me off the ledge, you know, helped me understand um, how I could contribute to the, the profession and how I could uh, enjoy being a fundraiser and what impact I could have, um, you know, for the, the organizations that I would work for. And he hit the nail on the head. He was absolutely right. I love it. Thank you for sharing such a poignant memory. And for sure, one of the recurring themes on this, this podcast has just been mentorship and those sort of career inflection points where somebody intervenes and makes the introduction or provides the pep talk. And, you know, when you, I think about it relative to the movie Back to the Future, it's like there are those moments when, you know, before this or after this, right, history starts to move in a different direction. And, right. you know, maybe the African-American Development Officers Network wouldn't exist if Charles Stevens hadn't sat you down for three hours in a food court in Miami, you know? Most definitely. The other thing, and this kind of fast forwards, but we can come back. The other thing that I want to say while we're talking about Charles is that he was the first African-American to chair the global board of the Association of Fundraising Professionals in 1995, mm -hmm. the very first one. I am the first African-American woman 
to serve as chair of the AFP Global Board. Uh, you know, in AFP's 62 year history in 2023, I'll step in that role January, you know, 1st. So, and will be the third African American period. So it doesn't escape me how, um, you know, special it is that I will serve in this role um, that my mentor, you know, sort of guided me uh, into without me uh, even realizing it. Wow. Well, I hope that AFP tells that story very good because that is uh, that is tremendous. And, you know, even in the context of just, it's a good reminder for all of us that going out of our way for that extra half hour, hour that we could easily not do, um, right. you know, can have short-term and long-term consequences uh, for better, for worse. And so that is a beautiful story. And I, yeah, I hope AFP tells it. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, I, while you were doing this work, actually, where were you? Um, where was your it, geographic home? Yeah. So I was in Buffalo, New York, which yep. is, um, I ended up in Buffalo because my dad was in the Air Force, 20 years in the Air Force. You know, we traveled uh, around and I was um, about 10 when we moved to Buffalo, his second career working as a civil engineer for the state of New York, responsible for the expansion of uh University of Buffalo's campus from the city to the suburb. That's how I ended up in Buffalo. Um, and so I went to school there, got married there, um, had my children there, got divorced there, um, started my career there. So all of this was happening in, in Buffalo. Let me just say, go Bills. All right, got that in. <laughs> well, we've got at least a couple of uh, colleagues that are uh, also fist pumping as they hear you uh, utter the go, go Bills expression. And, uh, uh, and and so then given that, uh, mm-hmm. what was the catalyst to make the move to Georgia? Not, not exactly uh, mm-hmm. what you might expect based <laughs> on the story you've shared so far. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that um, the president at the time in my 11th year with UNCF decided Bill Gray, Dr. Bill Gray, decided that he um, wanted to consolidate some offices. And one of the offices he wanted to consolidate was the my office. He wanted to move to New York City and have the New York City office manage the state of New York uh, campaign. And I'm just gonna keep it real. I'm gonna be 100% real. The salary I was being offered in New York City although it was um, a little bit of an increase on what I was making in Buffalo, two different, you know, um, cities, um, you know, two different economies. And so when I did the numbers, my salary actually decreased by uh, almost $18,000 if I moved to New York City. Cost of living. Cost of living adjusted, basically. Everything. Mm -hmm. So I decided to um, to look for another job, Um, and I was given plenty given plenty of time. I mean, when they decided to close the office and and you know consolidate it with the New York City office, I think I had like nine months, you know, to to make a decision. And the truth was, I had been raising money for UNCF for eleven years. And it sort of felt like I was moving from, uh, you know, selling Mercedes Benz to, you know, selling um, Audis or something. 
in the same community. It's not that, that anything was, you know, another organization by comparison, or, you know, wasn't as good. It was just that people were accustomed to me doing what I did, um, working for UNCF. And it just was going to be hard and confusing. Oh, wait, okay. Oh, now you're doing this. Oh, okay. So we had had meetings in Atlanta a lot, UNCF. And I thought, I kind of like Atlanta. I'm a little tired of the snow in Buffalo. So let me just take a look. And do you know, and as an older woman now, I just scratch my head when I think about this, but I actually moved to Atlanta with no job. Like, yes, I just, you know, they gave me this going away party. They wrote about it in the newspaper. They made a big deal out of it. And I packed up and my kids were finishing high school um, with my ex-husband and I moved to Atlanta with no job, moved in with my cousin and um, started looking for a job. And somehow Georgia Institute of Technology was in my head. I have no idea why. I think that um, uh, one of our, uh, one of the people who served on the, the national board for UNCF um, was, uh, um, Jonathan um, Bush, uh, the president's uh, brother, uh, first Bush's brother. And I had engaged with him a few times and he had mentioned Georgia Tech and the rambling wreck from Georgia Tech. And I think that's kind of how I got in my head. Anyway, um, I applied and I got a job and that started um, my 25 year career with Georgia Tech. In a sector where one of the biggest um, consistent challenges that we hear cited by leadership, uh, mm -hmm. and I think especially right now, uh, is turnover mm -hmm. and short tenure and job hopping and whatever it may be called. Very, very few people can say, and that started my 25-year career with insert singular institution. Right. Uh, especially when you're talking about Georgia or bust, pack up the car, crash with the cousin, see where it lands. Right. Um, you don't do that if it isn't a really good fit. Mm -hmm. And when did you realize it was a good fit? And what kept you there mm -hmm. for 25 years? Well, thanks for asking that question, because I love to, to tell this. Um, when I started at Georgia Tech in 1998, um, I was the first frontline fundraiser of color that Georgia Tech had ever hired. And so um, within a few months and within a year, I had decided that I was looking for my, my community, not that I felt, um, you know, uh, any kind of uh, way at Georgia Tech, uh, you know, in, in the, those early years that made me feel that I wasn't appreciated, respected, that there was racism or anything I was dealing with. But I had worked for an organization, my first fundraising job for 11 years with an organization that was 95% people of color. And so I now work for an organization where, you know, it was 95% um, you know, not people of color, and those other, you know, people of color were in um, administrative roles. So 
I was looking for my community and I went where I knew the HBCUs in the Atlanta University Center, right down the street from Georgia Tech, the schools that I had worked so hard for for 11 years, Spelman, Morehouse, Clark Atlanta University, Morris Brown. Um, and so I reached out to them and said, let's, let's get together. But hey, I will host you at Georgia Tech. Why not, you know, I'm at Georgia Tech, so why don't you all come over and, you know, we can, you can see Georgia Tech, maybe we can talk about ways to collaborate. And that actually started the African-American Development Officers Network, because that first gathering, 25 of us, we had such a great time. And then it was written uh, about the next year, it was written about in um, a, a magazine uh, called Issues in Black Higher Education, which is now Issues in Diverse higher education, but they wrote an article. And um, and so that began um, the, uh, the African-American Development Officers Network um, annual conference. And really that was the, the reason that I stayed because I was given such an opportunity by my vice president, Barrett Carson. He was so supportive of it that for the first, I don't know, four, three, four, five years, he paid for it. You know, um, uh, everything we needed, uh, the food, the lunch, the reception, um, materials, he covered it in his budget. And then uh, ultimately it just continued to grow. So I really, that was one reason. And the second reason that I stayed is because I can continue to get promoted. So I was hired as associate director of foundation relations and then promoted uh, within a year and a half to director. And then, then a few years later, three, four years later to senior director, and then three, four years later to um, executive director. And I was on uh, AVP track when I uh, decided to retire. <laughs> what year was that first meetup, Birgit? So um, it, it, in the article, they said 2000. So no, so we met in 99, but the first official kind of gathering beyond that breakfast little get together ended up being 2000. It's amazing. I mean, I guess on one hand, it was just such an organic step for you to take, but mm -hmm. this was not a time, you know, nobody was talking about DEI or, <laughs> or any of these topics. And um, it's got to be, yeah, I, I guess I should say nobody was talking about it in the national way that we're talking about it now. Right. But yeah. what were the conversations when you got mm -hmm. that group together? Um, mm -hmm. You know, what was it about how to be a just a great fundraiser? Was it about, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. HBCU specific? Mm -hmm. Was it mm -hmm. about um, being an African-American in, uh, you know, in the in the profession? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what mm -hmm. were the range of, of topics? All of it. All of it. And we could talk about all of it because it was us and it was um, it was a comfortable, um, you know, setting for us to um, to have the conversation, safe space, safe space. Um, and so, you know, the first uh, couple of years, you know, it the conversation was more focused on being um, you know, black in the profession, African-American in the profession, um, you know, just honestly, 
Uh, I remember um, the executive director for education for the Coca-Cola Foundation, um, uh, Michael Bivens, who I'm still friends with, um, spoke to the group. And he gave this honest, tell it like it is, um, you know, speech to us about don't think because you're meeting with, you know, another black, you know, a person in leadership that you bring anything less than your, um, you know, professional self, um, you know, with everything that you need to bring with you in order. You know, I mean, he told, he was just honest. Um, he also talked about not being the token, uh, you know, invited to meet, um, you know, with, with corporation or a foundation or even an individual, um, if you don't have something to contribute. He said he'd been in meetings where clearly somebody had been invited to come to the meeting because they brought diversity, visible diversity, and they sat through the whole meeting and contributed nothing because they didn't know about the program or they didn't know about the project or they really had nothing to contribute. He said it. they wasted space and it was obvious to him that they didn't know anything and that that organization, you know, brought that person along just to, to visibly dem demonstrate diversity. And he also shared a story about his own experience of having gotten on an elevator um, with two white gentlemen who didn't address him, didn't say anything, they didn't say hello, you know, um, and as if he were invisible, they got off on the floor, he went to the right, they went to the left, and a few minutes later, they were ushered into his office, they were there to see him, <laughs> and, you know, when they walked in the room and saw him, same man that had just ridden up on the elevator with him, they were mortified, because they hadn't bothered to to speak to him. So the beginnings, Brent, was, was a lot more around talking about our experiences. And then we moved in to talking more about, excuse me, being a professional. And what do we need to, um, what kind of education do we need to be, you know, a good professional? And so the interesting thing about that was that, um, it, you know, color didn't factor into it. So we didn't have to worry about being the only person of color or the only black person in a room talking uh, about the, the subject matter. Um, that was not, you know, a part of the discussion. We were talking about how do we become a better major gifts officer? Um, you know, how do we um, work through moves management? You know, so, um, but, you know, you weren't sitting there learning this and looking around the room going, I'm the only person of color in this room, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, uh, yeah, look, there's always an element of just getting um, kindred spirits together with, with some yes. shared experience, right? I'm sure within the group, people were very different, right? Different yes. perspectives and mm -hmm. interests and backgrounds and skills mm -hmm. and, a, and, and a common experience, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and so it sounds like, you know, it's partly a uh, little bit of, you know, group therapy and, you know, just kind of camaraderie uh, and then, you know, also professional development. And, and I guess yeah. on that note, I would be remiss to not ask you, and I'm sure a lot of your conversations these days are about um, AADO and about 
kind of this aspect of your work, but you're also a 25-year foundation relations expert. And you mm-hmm. probably don't get asked about your expertise in that regard all that mm-hmm. often right mm-hmm. now. And so let me put you on the spot a little bit. And like okay. for our audience who has maybe a corporate relations or foundation relations team, but uh, hasn't worked in that space, like mm-hmm. what is foundation relations 101? And um, you know, if, if you were to kind of summarize maybe the missed opportunity around foundation relations as you think about what worked really well at Georgia Tech and maybe what you've heard not working well elsewhere, how would you, um, yeah, how would you summarize that for our audience? Um, so, you know, the entire 25 years working at Georgia Tech, that's the space that I worked in, working with private philanthropic foundations. And when I first came, um, so let me just back up just a teeny bit. When I was with UNCF and, you know, I was the generalist doing everything, um, I decided, hey, we need to reach out to private foundations. And this was back before foundations were on uh, the internet, on online. So you had to write to get, you know, their, um, their annual report or their, you know, requirements for applying for grants. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny. I got uh, a foundation directory, the New York State Private Foundations Directory is probably about this thick. And I looked up the section that said education and identified about a hundred foundations throughout the state of New York that supported education. And UNCF sort of had, you know, a, a, a proposal that um, you filled in the blanks on, you know, made it more um, regional, you know, to your area. And I sent out these hundred letters and also please appreciate that this is, I'm just really dating myself. I'm laughing when I think about this. Um, This is right at the beginning of computers, but we were still using word process. So each letter actually had to go into the word processor, you know, and you sort of, um, you know, kind of lined it up and you had typed in all the information, you hit print, and each letter printed individually, okay? And then, you know, signed it, sent it out. So I did that. It took, you know, two days to send all those letters out with my assistant. And then I sat back and I waited for all the money to roll in. And one by one, I got, you know, rejection letter. And it was the standard, the same thing we all know now, you know, thank you, uh, you know, um, we don't have the the funds to support every organization that, you know, is what is deserving, blah, 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 blah. But I got one letter right, that said, Dear Miss Smith, Miss Smith Burton, uh, clearly you did not bother to read our guidelines because if you had, you never would have wasted our time or yours in sending this letter to us asking for a grant. I was mortified. I flipped through the book, found it, and it was a community college, you know, in such and such county that supported students that graduated from so-and-so high school with majoring, you know what I mean? Just none of it even fit. And so that's when I decided I need to learn how this works. And I figured out how it worked and um, ended up getting a half million dollar um, uh, grant. Um, from the Statler Foundation in Buffalo, New York. So fast forward to Georgia Tech. And, you know, I, I took, got this job as Associate Director of Foundation Relations. And I was 
like how, what am I going to do? There can't possibly be enough work for me to do because even though I figured out how to approach foundations, I'm the associate director. And this is what I do all day long when I just come from, you know, being a, a generalist and I did everything, special events, you know, major gifts, blah, blah, blah. And that's when I really discovered the work of private foundations. And in the beginning, you sent a proposal in, you got, they sent the check with the award letter. And then a few years in, um, things started changing and foundations started becoming more, more and more invested in supporting what they were interested in. And that's when I really learned, and this is what I advise people all the time. Um, you know, someone said to me early in my foundation uh, relations work, if you know one foundation, you know one foundation. And so I think it's extremely rewarding work um, if, you know, people have a passion for wanting to, to make that connection, I feel that the, the great um, excitement and enthusiasm comes from making those connections with a foundation that's interested in the work your organization is doing. Or, you know, um, at Georgia Tech, I could have been looking for support for our arts education program to... Uh, you know, scholarships to epitaxial graphene, you know, um, or, um, you know, any, any kind of uh, research or program and learning how to make that connection. Sometimes it means building a, a good relationship with that foundation. I have relationships that I will take with me to my grave with foundations, you know, um, private foundations, but I also have an understanding of big national foundations like the Ford Foundation or the MacArthur Foundation, where it's not just going to be the relationship, it's going to be the, the work that you're doing, the credibility that aligns with um, what their mission uh, you know, and focus are. So I'll end that, that rant by saying, um, I find it extremely rewarding. And if anybody listening you know, has that that feeling of, I want to find how you work with a private foundation to understand what their interests are and how I can connect them with this amazing work, then that's the space for you to plug into. Um, and it's been rewarding for me for 25 years. I think, you know, one of the areas that maybe you can touch on and then I want to bring it back to um, AADO is the dynamic is is different because you have right foundation objective and then you mm -hmm. have let in Georgia text case institutional priority and impact oh. area yes. but then there's sort of at the foundation you've got mm -hmm. at the foundation you've got you know individual right funder uh, decision yes. maker and then yes. you've got Birgit and so there's yes. like all of this like different connection right. of like mm -hmm. our our institutions aligned, but then yes. how much of it is like, I really like Birgit, which I would yes. imagine as a foundation, you don't really want to be your driving factor, but mm -hmm. people are people and people make mm -hmm. like foundations don't give money. People mm -hmm. give money, right? Mm -hmm. Who mm -hmm. get your perspective on the mm -hmm. like institutional mm -hmm. alignment relative mm -hmm. to like, to the two humans working together mm -hmm. really hit it off. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because that really is an important part of it. So, um, you know, foundations will note that uh, when it comes to institutions of higher ed or even organizations, what is the, the top priority of that organization or that institution? And does it align with what, you know, we're, we're funding or we're interested in sustainability, the environment? you know, um, are you doing work in that area? Um, so that that's hugely important. But the other thing is managing expectations. And so managing the expectations of your institution, you know, this is our focus, this is what's in our strategic plan. Is it aligning with the interests of that foundation that especially if it's a foundation that, that you know, um, can award a multi-million dollar grant? You know, that's what um, you know, your, your institution is going to want to zero in on. And so delivering that message of, I know you would love to see X foundation give $5 million towards this, but this is not going to be their area of interest. And here's the thing. It's like a bullseye. You get one shot to hit that bullseye and then, then it's over. And so let's, you know, it takes the the biggest opportunity to have the, you know, the uh, best shot of hitting that bullseye. And if this foundation is not going to care about X, it is a waste of an opportunity to submit a proposal for X. We might as well go for Y and have a bigger opportunity to get Y funded than to know from the beginning they're going to reject X because it's not in their area. Then to the relationship thing. Oh yes, I you know I probably get in trouble for saying this, but you know you will hear often. Um, you know, it, it will be said that relationships are are important, but they're not going to, you know, always be the reason that that a foundation might be uh, interested in in moving something forward. I could cite examples. Of, of times when I feel that the relationship, whether it's me, could be a great relationship with the president, could be a great relationship with a researcher, a faculty person, um, you know, a program manager has made a huge difference because people, you know, uh, interact and engage and like people. And I've seen the exact opposite happen. I actually brought a foundation to Georgia Tech once, and one of my colleagues was just a little bit rude with the program officer. Program officer pulled me aside and said, if you weren't here, we'd be packing our bags and we would be out and not considering a grant because um, we really are not interested in working with that person. So, yeah, it, it does factor in there at times. It's a great example. Thank you for sharing. And yeah, it's um, it's it's the human to human, even in the context mm -hmm. of institutional priorities. Um, now, when I look at your LinkedIn profile, it says that you're the founder and executive director of the AADO network starting in January of 2022. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like more like the year 2000. Uh, and so tell me about the journey <laughs> to go from, um, let's call it, you know, informal network to formal mm -hmm. network mm -hmm. to your um, retirement, which from where I sit is not much of a retirement at all. 
I hear that at least once a day, Brent. So, um, so here's the the quick journey on that. So AADO, you know, was just a, a network and, um, you know, led by me and volunteers every year who would give their time and their energy to help with our annual conference. Um, you know, other things that 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 we did. We had quite a, a timeline of um, of projects that AADO did, but it needed to be um, a nonprofit, a 501c3. And so um, about four years ago, we started working on the application. Um, I worked with a woman, her name is Anna Barber of Barber and Associates, um, a good friend. She helped pro bono uh, to complete the application. And um, a couple of years ago, uh, AADO became, uh, formally became a nonprofit organization. We had the founding board and we wanted to grow um, further by um, expanding the board. Let me just make a note to all your listeners. Do not bring on 18 new board members at one time. <laughs> that was very ambitious. They are all fantastic. If you go to the AADO website, you will see them. They are phenomenal people. I love and know every single one of them. Um, you know, we vetted that down the inaugural board of four of us vetted that down from 120, 130 uh, original people that were, were named as potential board members. And so, but I needed to move from, you know, a passionate volunteer, you know, making things happen like the wizard behind the curtain to um, the executive director. And so to do that, I really needed to step away from my full-time, you know, state job, um, you know, to um, serve as the executive director. So I did that in December um, and I am back at Georgia Tech on contract. Um, they call it RBW, retired but working. I'm working 49% of the time uh, because they still have not, um, you know, appointed my replacement. We're getting close. I'm helping with that search. And we hope to have that completed uh, in another month. And my successor will step into to my seat and I will help with the onboarding and, you know, in making introductions. Um, but you know, founder and executive director is what the, the board felt that, that my title should be. And um, I definitely have founder syndrome, but I have founder syndrome, you know, 20 some years making it happen, you know, on, on my own with volunteers um, makes it difficult when now you've got a board, you know, making recommendations and you can't just do everything the way you want to do it. Not bad. I, I'm not complaining because everything they want to do is great and they are passionate and committed, but I'm just not used to answering to a board. Well, uh, I have been through that journey uh, myself and uh, anytime you want to uh, uh, have an empathetic ear, you know where to find me. Um, I, I will in call the time you. That, please do. In the time that we have remaining, um, maybe a way to, to close is just What's your vision for AADO and how can our community learn more and maybe help out? So, um, you know, the, the big vision and always has been is to grow the pipeline of uh, fundraising professionals of color. 
a few years ago, I said, I'd love to see over the next decade, a thousand professionals of, of color, um, you know, in the fundraising profession. And so, you know, we're doing things um, to, uh, to see that happen. We created a few affinity groups. So we have Men of Color in Development, which is an affinity group of AADL. Also um, Rising Professionals of Color. So these are other entry points into AADO and ways of supporting and, and managing, um, uh, you know, uh, growing that pipeline. Um, I am uh, have started uh, working with organizations to create internship programs. So right now we're working with Best Friends um, and there are two interns that are a part of this program. And so we're helping uh, Best Friends in onboarding their interns. We serve AADO, myself serves as the liaison between their managers and the interns because we want them to have a good experience. If they don't have a good experience, you know, the first time that they, you know, are, are introduced to this profession, they may leave and not come back. And we don't have a, a chance to, you know, sort of recapture them, you know, um, into the profession. So we want to make sure that they have a good experience. Um, and so this is this is a part of what we're doing. Um, partnering with the Association of Fundraising Professionals um, because, you know, the uh, demographic study a few years ago for AFP noted that 9% of the membership were people of color. Um, 4% of that 9% are African-American. And so that's a very small percentage. And so, you know, we're focused on partnering with AFP um, to establish uh, AFP collegiate chapters at HBCUs um, because AFP has uh, collegiate chapters all over the country, um, but only one or maybe two at historically black college. Um, so, that, that is our, our first goal, to increase the, the, um, the numbers of fundraising professionals. And then to support those who are in the profession, help them with um, you know, uh, finding that right job. Our website, we have over 8,000 views a month of our job postings. Um, and it's been incredible, the amount of job postings we've been able to put on our website because organizations are really trying to be more visible in posting their jobs, you know, on, in our community. Um, and, you know, and in providing education and um, professional development to our membership. Can, can I ask what the impact of the technology adoption that we've gone through as part of the pandemic has meant to the organization? Because it sounds like you were grassroots, let's meet up down the street here in Atlanta. What is it like now that you are a Zoom link away from thousands mm -hmm. of potential, you know, partners, members, et cetera? Um, so let me address that first by saying, right before the pandemic, we were starting to have, um, you know, meetups in other cities. We actually had one that we was getting, we had just done one in Houston and Boston. We were getting it ready to do one in LA at um, uh, Caltech. Um, so, you know, that, that was a focus you know, and we're still going to keep doing that. But being able to connect um, 
through, you know, um, Zoom or Teams or however uh, folks are connecting has been um, tremendously helpful to, to us. People who um, are in the Pacific North, Northwest in communities where they are one of only a few professionals of color who have felt, you know, where, I mean, we could plan to come there and do something, but, you know, there aren't going to be that many people to, to meet up. But for them to be able to come and look at a screen filled with professionals of color who are noting things in chat, making connections, then linking on LinkedIn, you know, has been tremendous. And our membership has grown um, significantly over the past few years. So it has been a bonus uh, for us in so, so, so many ways. And we will continue that um, for sure. Well, on that note, Birgit, if our audience wants to get involved or wants to learn more, wants to connect with you, what's the best way to do so? So I suggest that people go to our website, um, www.aadonetwork.com. You go to the contact page, in the middle of the page is a green box. You put your email and name in there and you will get on our newsletter list. Our newsletter goes out monthly and it has profiles of members, it has stories, it has information, articles, um, and uh, a way that people can also plug in um, in different ways, whether you are a professional of color, an ally, or, um, you know, we even invite a connection with talent managers because this is how folks are going to, uh, you know, find out opportunities that they can, um, you know, be considered for. Um, so, yes, please do that. We would appreciate that. And um, you can also reach out to us on that same contact page if you want to send a message uh, to me or get a message to anybody else who is a part of the, the AADO network. Going through right now. So consider me a friend and an ally. Uh, and if there's anything we can do uh, to support your work. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that there will be opportunities for future collaboration, but I just want to say thank you for sharing your, uh, your journey. And uh, um, I am really looking forward to some future, future karaoke. So uh, start <laughs> thinking about what we're going to be uh, singing. Okay. Sounds good. I'm up for it. Uh, all right, you. everybody. Well, with that, uh, Brent signing off to today's guest, Birgit Burton, founder and uh, Birgit Smith Burton, founder and executive director of the African-American Development Officers Network. Thanks, Birgit. Take care, everybody. Thank you.